We are so blessed today on this rather warm July day, and we need to pray for rain, which is very important coming into the season now that we are in. So we need some rain, but we also need some rain from heaven, some Holy Spirit, some Holy Spirit rain from heaven. We want to welcome everyone today, and especially to our Israelites that are scattered across the whole world, especially those living in the United States of America, and particularly those who live in Idaho, California, especially those in Texas, Illinois, West Virginia, and scattered all over the United States. Thank you for joining us today, and to all the folks that are here right now, let us pray. God, our Father, <clears throat> how grateful we are on this lovely, beautiful Sabbath day to enter into this house of worship. God, our Father, we thank you for opening our hearts to the true, undefiled, enduring Word of God. Help us to discern the times that we're living in. Give us wisdom to know how the remnant should uh, navigate the world that we, allow, that we now live in. Father in heaven, we look to the heavens this morning. We pray for rain, wherever that rain may be needed across this nation and around the world. And particularly, Lord God, we humble ourselves as we remember the beautiful words found in 2 Chronicles 7, 14. And I'll ask everyone to join with me as we incorporate these beautiful words into our prayer this morning from 2 Chronicles 7, 14. Please join me. If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven, will forgive their sin, and will heal their land. Merciful Father, we plead today for the rain that will water this earth to raise up the green vegetation and make the crops and the gardens grow. Lord God, we know that you are the creator, you are the maker, and you are the sustainer of life. We look to you today, O oh blessed Father, and in the wonderful name of our Lord Jesus Christ, bless this gathering of your people. Pour out the rain of the Holy Spirit upon us and guide us on our way that we may forever give you all praise and glory and honor, both now and in all ages to come. In Christ we pray, amen. Lesson number three, opening, opening your Bible to Genesis chapter number seven. Now we know, beloved, the Bible that you hold in your hands. Do you realize the enduring value of the Word of God? The Bible is the greatest single solitary volume ever recorded in human history. It is the foundation of all truth. It is absolute truth, divinely inspired, 
providentially preserved as the revelation of God to his covenant people. The Bible was written by Israelites, 40 different authors writing over a span of 1,600 years. Most of them, many of them did not know each other. Some of them were contemporaries, but many of them lived without knowing many or most all the other writers of the Bible. How all 40 of these authors writing their contribution could harmonize with others stretching out over a period of 1,600 years is a miracle in and of itself. The Bible contains 1,189 chapters, 31,102 words. Every author was a Hebraic Israelite. Every one of them, think about that. Every one of them wrote to, for, and about the people called Israel, the covenant people of the book. You may read your Bible for a very long time, but unless you know who the Bible was written to, for, and about, you will be ever learning, but seldom come to very much truth. With those thoughts in mind, beloved, we just want to praise God that we Christian believers who believe the Word of God are the benefactors of one of the greatest most significant blessings we could ever hold on to. And to consider today that there have been generations that preceded us in time that did not have access to a Bible, many of them would have given anything in this world to have had a copy of the actual Bible to read. They only knew parts of the Bible that they heard quoted in sermons, but they believed, and that's where uh, the historic creeds came into being because people wrote the creeds that held them together from the Bible scriptures that were intermittently preached to them. Now the account of Noah and the flood holds a prominent place in the minds of Christian people up and down the land across the panorama of Bibles of Bible time. The entire panorama of the Bible historical time period, the story of Genesis has been weaved into the fabric of all Bible truth. Now here's, here's what we need to remember. Every truth of the Bible found in the New Testament, every thread of truth in that part of the Bible begins back in Genesis. If we do not understand Genesis, we're going to be finding ourselves deficient in every other attempt to understand the Bible. The first 11 chapters of Genesis are really foundational. Beginning with chapter 12, the Bible begins the story of Abraham, which is the story of the covenant people. Now, there's some reason why people wrestle. They wrestle with the first 11 chapters of Genesis. Why is that? Do you have an answer for it? Because I do not. 
people will generally believe, most every Christian believes the Bible, biblical foundation story of creation. They, they have no trouble with that one. They believe in the story of Adam and Eve. They believe in the fall that took place in the garden. Have no trouble with that, excepting they have a very shallow, anemic, pathetic interpretation of what happened in the Garden of Eden. And they gloss over it almost as, as though they didn't really find that too interesting. Then they generally believe the stories even like Cain and Abel and all those kind of stories. But why is it when they come to the Genesis flood, they choke? Why is that? I'm in a search to find out the reason. Beginning in Genesis 6, all of chapter 6, all of chapter 7, all of chapter 8, and almost more than half of chapter 9 is dealing with the Genesis flood. Now, why is it that we can accept literally what the Bible teaches about the Garden of Eden, for example? We don't have any problem believing there was a real Adam and a real Eve. No problem there. They were literal. They were real. Uh, they were people that we actually believe existed. No problem there. But when we come to the flood, somehow, for some strange reason, we just can't quite fathom any literal interpretation of what God says in His Word. We just don't, simp we simply can't believe what God says. Now here's what we need to do. We need to all remember that there's only one living witness to the first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis. One living witness, that's God. And we have a beautiful record of what God said that we should know and what we should believe about the first 11 chapters of Genesis. And really, it's no big struggle. All we have to do is read it and believe it. Read it and believe it. We don't need to have... Now, I, I, I want to confess today, people, I was tempted to bring along Josephus. Tempted to bring along the book of Jasher. Tempted to bring along the pseudepigraphal books of, of the Jubilee and Enoch and some of those rather interesting areas of extra-biblical information. But I refrain from doing that simply because we haven't yet, as a, a covenant people, at least in my generation, been able to get past what the Bible says about the Genesis flood, much less what Josephus, <clears throat> or the book of Jasher, or the Pseudepigrapha, the book of Jubilees, the book of Enoch, the book of Adam and Eve, and all the other books in the Pseudepigrapha have to say about the Garden of Eden, correction, about the Noahic flood, and there's a whole world, a whole world that they'll open up in those uh, extra literature books. But I just want us to concentrate on a literal meaning of the Bible. There's a general rule of Bible hermeneutics, the interpretation of Bible's truth. Hermeneutics is the science of, of interpretation. 
You should always read the Bible as though it were literal unless the context of the Bible prohibits a literal interpretation. And the idea that the Bible in the story of the Genesis flood is some kind of figurative or allegorical or some other kind of, of information that doesn't really mean what the Bible says is just pure nonsense. God said it, believe it. That's all you have to do and you'll be, at, you'll be in, a good, in, a, in real good form. So today without a, a lot of further explanations, what we're going to do, we're going to jump into this third lesson here. And I'm just by way of reminder, by way of a reminder, in the last great sermon Jesus delivered on this planet, before he went to the crucifixion, he said, as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it also be in the days of the coming of man. Jesus guided us to the, the event of the, of the flood and of Noah as a prefiguring precursor to the final end of history, not of the world, but of history as we know it. And he guided us to the flood and Noah and the ark as a precursor to what we need to know, examine, and really, really think about in the world that we live in today. Now, as we refer back to that wonderful book called the book of Genesis, Jesus said something that I think is <clears throat> quite marvelous in John 6, 63. He said, the flesh profiteth nothing. It is the spirit that quickeneth. It is the spirit that quickeneth because it gives life. And the word of God gives life. So I pray today, God help us to open up our hearts and just let the Bible speak to you. Believe, for, believe the Bible for what it says. And, and the idea that, that we need to have a doctor of divinity, we need to be a, a DD, or we need to be a, a doctor of divine knowledge. People, where do you read about that in the Bible? God's word is so plain that a child can generally understand it, not thoroughly and not profoundly, but I can take a group of seven, eight, and nine-year-olds and let them read the story of the flood and they will have no problem with it. They'll just accept what God has written. But when we get to be adults, we want to find a reason that this word can't mean that, that this phrase cannot possibly mean what the Bible really is saying, must, be, must mean something else. Now I can say that, beloved, because I have read multiple commentaries written in the last hundred years from people who have written about the Genesis flood, and most of them are very, very pitiful 
in terms of their understanding, but there's a few exceptions, and for those I give God praise. Now, Noah is the primary figure. He's the principal character of this great narrative. If you think of the, of the, note, of the flood as a great drama, great drama, and it would be if you could cast it and, and, and build an ark that big. And How many have seen the, the ark that's been reproduced in Kentucky? Okay, I'd like to hear what uh, Katie has to say about that uh, visual that she saw there in Kentucky. May ask her to, to tell us. But I'd like for you to turn with me now to the book of Genesis chapter 7, verse 1. Chapter 7, verse 1, and we'll just jump right in here. Because um, I think it's important that we look here at... Genesis 7, 1. And, and we'll read that together here. I'm in Genesis chapter number 7, verse 1. And the Lord, that's Jehovah, said unto Noah, Come, come thou and all thy house into the ark. For thee have I seen righteous before me in this generation. I want you to consider Noah. I want you to think about him as just the man that he was. We don't know much about his wife, but we know that she was an obedient wife. She persisted through all 120 years of the time that the ark is being built. And she was there amid all the ridicule, the mocking, the persecution that Noah endured as he was building, constructing one of the most enormous engineering undertakings that had ever been performed by human hands. Now the blueprint for the ark was given to Noah by his creator. But it was left to Noah to go build this ark. And when I, when I visualize the enormity of this huge box boat that's going to be stabilized amid the violence of the Genesis flood, I'm overwhelmed by the enormity of the character of this man and what he must have known, how Noah must have harnessed at least some people to help him build that enormous monster. There's no way in the world that Noah and his three sons could have lifted some of those beams unless they were superhuman. Because some of those beams we would say needed a crane by all normal standards to be lifted in place. Nonetheless, Noah was a man of indomitable, indomitable, indomitable faith. He was a man of true faith, and he was a man who put legs under his faith. Noah believed, and it was a, a faith that, that was actionable. He had a faith that bore fruit. And that should motivate every one of us to know that it's one thing to believe. But it's another thing to put actionable legs under your faith. That your life and the life you're living must reflect the faith that you believe. You have to live what your faith says you are. Noah was a nonconformist and a real nonconformist. 
Now, I don't, I don't know. I know that everyone that I know of in here very well is really a nonconformist. Now, nonconformist people, are de- they, they are nonconforming by degrees. Some people cannot bear the idea of not being like everybody else. That's why fads get going. People that follow fads are people that absolutely cannot live as a nonconformist because they want to be accepted. They want to be like other people. So they'll do anything. They'll, they'll clip on nose rings. They'll put rings in their lips. They'll torture their body because it's the thing to do now. It's a fad. Be a nonconformist. Noah was a nonconformist. And if you want to be a God-fearing, Bible-believing, spirit-filled, sin-hating, devil-chating, devil-chasing, kingdom believer, you have been, you, you're going to have to be a nonconformist. Now, I don't mean to be some kind of an obnoxious, obnoxious nonconformist. Somebody who's just trying to be so different that they actually make themselves a spectacle. I'm talking about a nonconformist in a godly way. Where your life testimony is a testimonial that others are attracted to by your nonconforming lifestyle. I hope I'm registering with you. I'm not sure that I'm trying to get the words out that I wanted to, but I wanted to say that Noah was also a patient man. I can imagine the patience that it took to build a, to have a building project for 120 years. I'd get so, I think I'd get so tired of looking at that building project that I wouldn't know what to do with it. 120 years, but that was a monuments, monumental uh, undertaking for Noah to build the ark. It was singularly the greatest architectural uh, uh, event in, in that time of history. And it's not been exceeded by many, many uh, people even to this day. There's no engineer that cannot learn something from the construction of the, of the, uh, the Noah's Ark. And that would test a good architect. It would test a good architect, I can di- guarantee you, to account... For a, a, a ship that large, it's going to have to give life for over one year. They're going to be on that ship for over one year, 370 days. They're going to be on, inside that ark taking a cruise. I've been on one cruise. It was about a 10-day cruise. And I was cruised out the first two days. I was done. Now, Noah was an obedient man. There's nothing better that God loves you for than to believe Him and obey Him. And that old song, Trust and Obey, is the, is the singular great meaning of what it means to be a good Christian. Just trust and obey. Trust God and obey. And we live in a generation, people, when we need to learn to trust God. When I hear some of the weird things that I hear uh, that are being planned, 
when I listen to some of these, uh, oh, listen, I might, I might say the, the people that head up the World Economic Forum, when I hear some of these billionaire globalists with their big swelling ideas of how the world is going to be, I look to the heavens and I think of the Tower of Babel. And I think how quickly God could destroy the plan of the billionaire oligarchs that intend to rule the world. You know, the Bible only has one solid verse in the New Testament about Noah. By faith, Noah being warned of God of things not seen as yet, prepared the ark for the saving of his house by which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness which is by faith. Noah is a living example that should not be diminished or uh, his his standing in Bible truth and history should not be diminished, but it should be honored for what this hero of the faith was able to do. And the idea that the Bible says by faith Noah he feared God, moved with fear. You know, the fear of God is a wholesome thing, church. A few years ago, I had a person in this congregation, not here now, but they came to me privately and said, I don't like to hear the idea that we should fear God. You know, fear is, the, another synonym for fear is reverence. We should have reverence, honor, and fear before God because the Bible says it is a fearful thing to fall into the hand of the living God. Better that your children, when they're growing up, be faithful, be faithful because they fear God, than that they're taught that God is all love and they know... They don't need to worry about any kind of repercussion, repercussions from God if they misbehave. Our children need to grow up with the fear of God. And that fear begins with the Father's paddle. That's where that fear for God begins in the heart of a child with his daddy. Now, it can be overdone. Yes, we know all about that. Now, beloved, what I would like to do now as we think about this very first verse in Genesis, I want you to think about this. I want you to give some real heavy thought to this for just a moment. Jesus said, as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be also in the days of the Son of Man. Based on everything that I can extract from the, from the record in Genesis, for example, God says in Genesis 6, The end of all flesh is come before me. 
man has become wholly corrupted. Every thought of their mind and imagination is evil continually. I look at America today and the behavior of our culture. I cannot believe that I live in a nation that has become so depraved and so morally bankrupt that they are willing to take six, five, six, seven, and eight-year-old children from kindergarten up through the primary grade of first, second, third, even into the fourth grade, and give them hormonal shots, hormone shots, to disrupt their puberty so that they will have an opportunity to determine if they want to be a boy or a girl. And if they want to participate in women's sports and they did not have their hormone shots before puberty, they will, dis they will be disqualified. If they have those shots after pu puberty, then the idea is that they'll muscle out like a man and get too strong for the ladies. Now this is, this is what I will call depraved thinking. It's, de it's, a, it's a, 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 a morally bankrupt, corrupt, insane generation that we're moving into. Now I'm very much concerned about this about all the goings-on in, in the, uh, among the minds of the intelligentsia of this country. The public schools of this country are becoming so corrupt. And the, if you've been reading the American uh, Teachers Association, the National, the NEA, are buying into this immorality in a level that is disgraceful. It's child abuse to the nth degree. And no child should be forced to endure the fire of Moloch in those schools. Now, the behavior that I'm talking about, church, is so gross. It's so unreal that it's hard for me to believe that a civilized, intelligent educated population could believe that they can, by scientific means, turn a man into a woman and a woman into a man, so that now they are preparing boys now to understand that someday they may be a mother and that they may actually be able to give birth to a child and I won't go any further, but the, the nonsense becomes so absolutely absurd that it is insane. It reminds me of what St. Paul writes in Romans chapter 1 when he says, God will give them over to a reprobate mind, meaning that he will turn them over to a mind that is insane, living in total delusion. And that is where the culture of our generation is moving. That's why I believe that the story of the flood and of, of Noah, the ark, and the, the account of that great event in history is a monumental 
importance in our generation. So I, I leave you that thought, and uh, I want you to think about that because to me, there is every reason, reasonable explanation for why we just simply need to know that the 87 chapter, a correction, 87 verses continuously in the book of Genesis about the flood are really significant, a significant part of the Bible that we really need to build on. When the Bible says to Noah, come thou and all thy house into the ark. That's a wonderful invitation. If you lived in that time of history and God said, okay, come. Come into the house. Get inside the ark. Because the judgment that I have been predicting is coming. It's coming. Get into the ark. Come thou and all thy house into the ark. Now this is significant, people, because it tells me that a family entered the ark. A family entered the ark. Hello out there. A family entered the ark. And we ought to be preparing our families, our families, as husbands and fathers, we have a responsibility to prepare our family, our wives and our children, to enter into the ark. To enter into the ark. Because I see the evidence of overwhelming reasons why I believe that we are living in a land under judgment. That God's grace is being lifted from America, and unless there is some very profound, very significant prayers that are made to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob by faith in Christ our Savior, there is a day of judgment that is rapidly going to come upon this land. Noah was the builder not only of the ark, but he was obviously the builder of a family. There is nothing. Now, hear me out. Please, at least give consideration. There's nothing that the men of this generation are going to be able to do. Nothing. That is going to be more significant than to build a godly family. Building a godly family will be the most enormous the most, the most wonderful legacy that you can leave on this earth. And I, and I would say this, if Noah had not been able to build the family that he built, his building of the ark would have not been nearly as significant. But the fact that all three of his sons and all three of the wives of those sons entered into the ark, if they argued with Noah, there was no, there's no record of it. We don't know the family intrigue. Some of the, uh, the wives may have wondered what in the world they'd married into. I do not know. All I know is that they all entered into the ark, and that's an overwhelming mark of achievement for Noah. His whole family moved into the ark. Now, I'm on my knees praying for my family. Because I want my family in the ark. I want my family inside the ark. And I know to be in the ark is to find the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the ark. And the church, he is the savior of the body, the head of the church, which I believe is the ark. 
And I think I've got the weight of a lot of church fathers who called the church. They use the ark as a pattern for the church. It's a place of refuge. It's, it's an ark of safety. Run to the ark. Get inside the door. When God closes the door, he'll seal it. So Noah was a builder of a family. God said, come into my house. It's time for the judgment I promised you. The most catastrophic event in earth history was about to take place. Nothing since creation had ever occurred on the earth. Like the story of creation, the event of creation until the time of the Genesis flood. In Matthew eleven twenty eight, Jesus gives an invitation to all of us. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Do you people know that when you, when you, call, when you blow the whistle and call time out on a Sabbath to come inside the house of God, that you are doing one of the most monumental things that you could do in our time of history. Because when you enter this sanctuary, your spirit, your soul, and your body are being refreshed. You are being rejuvenated. Your blood pressure is being regulated. There's all kinds of wonderful things happening in your physical body, your spirit, and your soul in the worship of God. It's very important. So I would like for all of us to remember that God invited Noah to come into the house. Come into the ark, Noah. Come into the ark. It's time. And I'd like to emphasize that it is time. It is time for all true Bible-believing Israel, all Israelites that believe, it's time to look and see what your relationship to Jesus Christ really is. Are you inside the ark or have you remained outside? So we're going to move on now and we're going to look at Genesis 7, 2, and 3. We know how important the family is. We know that God invited Noah to come into the ark with his entire family. Here comes Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and their wives, Noah and his wife, and then all the other life forms. Genesis 7, verses 2 and 3 says, Of every clean beast thou shalt take to thee by sevens, the male and his female. Oh, God knows the distinction of gender. Isn't that wonderful? And of beasts that are not clean by two, the male and his female, of the fowls also of the air by sevens, the male and, his, and the female, to keep seed alive on the face of all the earth. This passage now 
gives additional detail that we didn't get back in chapter 6, verse 19, when it said, Of every living thing of all flesh, two of every sort shalt thou bring into the ark. Now we know that certain kinds of creatures are being brought in by in pairs of seven. They will be used for blood sacrifice, and there'll have to be more of them. Now the intent here is very explicit and clear. Notice what it says here, that when it says every, of every clean beast, of beasts that are not clean, this is so inclusive. Why would God go to all the trouble to gather up these creatures if all they have to do is go to higher ground, they have 120 years to go to a more elevated area. I think they could arrive wherever they wanted to arrive in 120 years. But for some reason, this event that's coming, they're not going to be able to find any place that, will, that they'll be able to shelter from the flood that's coming. So we have... That very significance here. And in verse chapter number 7, <clears throat> rather, I, I wanted to go back to verse uh, chap, chapter 6, verse 17, where God said, And behold, now th listen to the sovereignty of God. And behold, I, Almighty God, even I, Almighty God, to bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh, Wherein is the breath of life from under heaven? Everything that is in the earth shall die. That language is so emphatic. And if you do not believe that literally, and you want to take that figuratively, and, and rearrange the meaning of those words, friend, have at it. But as for me and my house, I'll stand with Joshua. We will believe the Lord God Almighty. So let's look at uh, Genesis 7, verse 4. For yet seven days. Seven days. Now, remember, Noah and his family are now in the ark. I will cause it to rain upon the earth forty days and forty nights. And every living substance that I have made will I destroy from off the face of the earth. We know now for the first time how long the flood is going to last. We know a flood was coming, but now we know it's going to be a 40-day, 40 40-night 40 uh, rain. And it's going to be more than a rain, more than just an ordinary rain. Now reflect upon it. This downpour will last 40 days. In 1986, if my memory is correct, we had 26 inches of rain in about 50 50 two or three hours. And you know what it did to us in a few hours of torrential rain. This rain is 40 days long, and that's not all. We'll see some more about that. Now, before the, before the flood, there was no rain ever seen. Noah had never seen rain. He's building an ark for an event 
of down, a downpour of rain and he's never seen rain in his entire life. Neither had anyone else in the world and that's why they mocked Noah, ridiculed him because rain? What do you mean rain, Noah? The earth at that time, as we read in Genesis 2, was watered by a mist that went up every day and turned the earth into a giant greenhouse with vegetation so abundant that dinosaurs and huge creatures had all kinds of plant life to consume. And so now this flood is coming and wait till it arrives. As we read on now in the Genesis record, let's go to uh, verse 5, Genesis 7, verse 5. And Noah did according to all that the Lord commanded him. What an obedient servant. All that he, all that God commanded, Noah did it. Noah was 600 years old when the flood of waters was upon the earth. Somebody's keeping a pretty accurate record. Noah went in and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him into the ark because of the waters of the flood of clean beasts and of beasts that are not clean and of fowls and of every living and of everything that creepeth. All the creeps went in that creepeth upon the earth. They went in two and two unto Noah into the ark, the male and the female, as God had commanded Noah. I'm glad that they were not being commanded to do this in our generation because they'd have to have a, a great meeting to decide uh, what a female and a male was. Now notice in verse 7 that they entered the, into the ark. They had entered into the ark seven days before the rain began to fall. Now imagine going inside that ark. You never, you never seen the rain. It's supposed to become a rain, a flood, and you're there day number one, day number two. Can, do you think you'd be anxious? Is it really going to rain? Is it really going to rain? I wonder how many people in Noah's family were filled with anxiety. Well, what about all the people outside the ark? A lot of those neighbors and people knew they had gone inside the ark. Seven days go by and the rain hasn't come. And I can only imagine what they're saying. I can only imagine what they were saying. Let's go on. And let's notice what we read. In Genesis chapter number 7 and verse number 8. Of clean beasts and of beasts that are not clean. Of fowls and of everything that creepeth upon the earth. There went in two and two unto Noah into the ark, the male and his female, as God had commanded Noah. And it came to pass after seven days... Of the flood were upon the, the, the waters of the flood were upon the earth, and in the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, the 17th day of the month, the fountains, the same day were all the fountains of the great deep broken up, the windows of heaven were opened, 
and the rain was upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. Now, Genesis 7, verse 11, look down at that verse. Here we have a very specific account of the fact that in the 600th year of Noah's life, it was the second month, the 17th day of the month. This is a very accurate record that someone is keeping. I mean, they didn't just, you know, enter the ark. Somebody's keeping a very, very, very careful written account of this. Now that verse also tells us that they had a way of measuring time. There was, time was measured by days, solar days from the creation, 24-hour days. They measured it time by months. Later we'll find they measured it by seven days or a week of time, an increment of one week. And they measured by centuries or a hundred years. So they had a calendar. Now that calendar that they, that they, they used was a 30-day month. Not like the calendars that we use today. Because what happened in the Genesis flood was that the earth was til tilted on its axis. They say, scholars say, about 23 and a third degrees. And that's what makes seasonal changes possible. We didn't have summer, winter, spring, and fall before the Genesis flood. After that flood, we, we, we had seasonal changes because the whole atmosphere of the world was radically changed at the time of the Genesis flood. So Genesis 7 verse 11 marks day one of the flood in the 600th year, second month, 17th day. So what happens now? Verse 11, and then going on to verse number 12. The Bible says that all the fountains, the rain was upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights, and in the same day, uh, Noah, Shem, Ham, Japheth, sons of Noah, Noah's wife, and the three wives of his sons, with them into the ark, they and every beast after his kind, and all the cattle after their kind, every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth, after his kind. Notice, after his kind. God observed the law of kind after his kind. We don't know what that law in contemporary America is today. We've forgotten it, I believe. And every fowl after his kind, every bird of every sort, they went in unto Noah, into the ark, two and two of all flesh, wherein is the breath of life. Now, notice verse 15. Notice verse 15, beloved, that all flesh, wherein is the breath of life, every living thing on earth that was oxygen breathing, that was air breathing, is going to be represented in that ark. They went in unto Noah. Noah didn't have to go gather any of these uh, life forms. They all came to Noah 
they all entered into the, into the ark of their own accord. And they went in, and they that went in, verse 16, were male and female of all flesh. Now, I want you to think of all flesh. That would have made, that would have made representations of every separate and distinct race that God had created went inside that ark. Now this business of trying to bring all races from Noah's three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, is absolutely doing serious harm to the Bible record. It's a desecration of God's character to say that God brought all races out of Adam's, or correction, out of the family of Noah. Now we know that Adam and Eve were not the progenitors of all the races, separate and distinct races on the earth. And I have a library of probably 25 books written, some of them 100, 150, 200 years ago. America at one time universally believed that Adam and Eve the pulpits of this country universally taught that Adam and Eve were the parents of the Caucasian race and of no other. It doesn't mean that God didn't love all of his creation. Every race God created had a purpose in God's plan. But the Bible says, Genesis 5, 1, this is the book of the generations of Adam. And people who try to open the Bible and imagine that they can make it the biblical record of all the people on the earth are only fooling themselves. They're not fooling God. The Bible says in verse 17, the flood was 40 days upon the earth and the waters increased and bare up the ark and it was lift up above the earth and the waters prevailed and were increased greatly upon the earth and the ark went upon the face of the waters. Now, notice beloved, Notice, if you will, as the water come down, do not forget what, what, uh, what we read earlier in verse 11. Just put your eyes on verse 11 for a moment. All the fountains of the great deep were broken up. What does that mean? That means that the subterranean regions of the earth were broken up and the earth was boiling over with hot molten lava. That heat was so intense that it melted any kind of rock you can name. There's no rock that you can name that did not get melted by the heat coming up from that subterranean uh, below the ground surface. It melted metal. Why do you see veins of ore all over? As that molten lava and, and the heated rocks, it melted every part of the whole underneath surface of the earth was belching up to form mountains. Volcanoes were erupting. Underground tsunamis. The earth was a violent, violent place. It was a time of great violence inside that ark. And God had prepared that ark, the design of the ark, 
was designed for stability. The draft of the ark, that is, the part of the ark below the water, was about equal to the to one half of the height of the ark itself. So the ark was about 45 feet high, it was 450 feet long, it was 75 feet wide, and, and the draft of that ark was about half of its height, or the ark was about 22 feet under the water, rough approximation. But that's what the engineers and architects who have studied this really do believe, and I have no reason to doubt their conclusion now, what does it mean when it says that the fountains of the, the, the um, what does it say about the heavens? The fountains of the great deep broken up and the windows of heaven were open. What do you think it means when it says the windows of heaven were opened up? When it rains here today, oh, that's a hopeful statement. Whenever it rains, does it rain? Does the windows of heaven open up? Don't think so. This is a very unusual expression. It's a one-time event when this heavens will open and that great canopy of water that you read about in the Genesis creation, Genesis chapter 1, that great layer of water that's up in the, in the cloud, way above the clouds, that layer of water came cascading down and it was so violent when it reached the earth that it added to the violence that's coming up from below. Now, here is something that people simply have missed. They underestimate the violence of the Genesis flood. The, the structure of the ark was so designed that it could survive and st remain stable on the water amid the greatest violence that you can imagine occurring here in, the, in this uh, time of, of catastrophic uh, event history, uh, it, this event of history. So I just mentioned that for whatever that may be worth. Now, if you'll notice here, people, in, uh, I just want to mention this. Back in verse 13, you'll notice it says something. It says, in the self-same day, Noah entered into the ark. Now, what do you think that means? The self-same day. Find that expression used at the time of the Exodus. Self-same day. It means that that was an ordained event for that moment for Noah to enter into the ark. It was ordained. Now, church, with these thoughts in mind, I want to just say here today that since our time is expired, the Genesis flood is an enormous undertaking to study. You just can't simply read these verses if you want to be a real student of the Genesis flood. You are going to have to leave the comfort zone and start reading 
and reading a lot. Because there are people that have devoted their mind and heart to understanding this event, and they've written books. Some of you are familiar with Howard Rand, was a great Israelite Bible teacher. Howard Rand wrote a book called Primogenesis, in which he describes his understanding of the Genesis flood. He goes into that canopy of water above the, above the earth. Another book that's very significant is the Genesis flood written by John Whitcomb and Henry Morris. They're both scientists. Now these books are lengthy books. They're four, 300, 400, 500 page books. Now, I can pr produce a bibliography of the Genesis flood with about 50 really good books. And I promise you that if anyone really wants to go into the details of this account, and you really want to know how brief the Bible record is, and how enormous the event really was, the Bible only gives you a very condensed, succinct statement about the Genesis flood. Now, I think that this probably will be the last lesson on the Genesis flood that I intend to give. I, I feel very bad because we didn't finish this chapter, but that's the way it is, and so we leave it there. Now, if there's anyone that thinks we ought to go on, I would go on, but I'm not going to go on any further, lest I overstate the issue here. So let us be standing, and may God bless all of you.